I'm Lynn Harder, creator of the Defining Moments podcast. Welcome back to friends who've been with us on this journey, and welcome to those first joining us. At the heart of this podcast is a question I've chased for the better part of 20 years. How do we live well in the midst of inescapable illness, hardship, trauma, suffering? How do we live well in the midst of life hardship? Over the first two seasons, guests disrupted the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. They shared stories about the defining moments of their lives, those moments that can transform us, that render us different than we were before. One thing that's unique about this podcast is that episodes are coupled with articles published in Health Communication, a journal sponsored by the Taylor and Francis Group of Rutledge Publishing. For season three, I am so delighted to be joined by Dr. Joe Bianco, an associate professor in the Department of Social Medicine at HCOM, or Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Joe is also the associate director of the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact, and he's joining as a co-producer and co-host of Defining Moments podcast. And I also get to call him a friend. Joe, I think we first met in maybe 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think around there. I remember the day. I do too. Isn't that funny? We were in Grosvenor Hall. Mm -hmm. We'd come together for a learning community, was really centered on community-based participatory research. That's right. That's right. It was a group of OU um, scholars. We had community representatives. It was a really interesting meeting, the first of the, that kind that I went to. Me too. Me too. And it, it kind of marked this shift that was going on in the broader academy mm-hmm. that was really calling on universities to be more answerable to the community stakeholders mm-hmm. and their regions in which they lived. Mm-hmm. And to step back and think about the power relations that are involved in any relationship where you're trying to advance knowledge, where you're posing questions, you're pursuing answers. But oftentimes, that's done in ways that privilege academic theorizing. Right. Right. It was a, a call to not only recognize the wisdom in the community, but to recognize the way the community locates its wisdom, perpetuates it, you know, how the community operates instead of asking the community to follow an academic timeline, an academic grant cycle. It's yeah. sort of really meeting the community as an equal partner, knowing them and collaborating together. No room for egos in that sort of arrangement, which is, I think, what drew us to it. Oh, yeah. I remember meeting you thinking I had met a kindred spirit. I'd met somebody who shared similar narrative sensibilities because we both were drawn to, in this project, of community-based participatory research. Sometimes it's called engaged scholarship, sometimes action research, sometimes translational scholarship. But all of that under this umbrella of how do we flip the script? Right. 
flip the dominant narrative of relationships between campuses and communities. Mm -hmm. For us, it was very much a narrative experience. It was, and <laughs> I remember really fondly thinking the first time I moved to Ohio back in 2002, no one spoke the language <laughs> that I knew. I grew up and went to school in, the, in New York. At that meeting, 2008, suddenly someone was talking about theory and about story and about narrative sensibilities, and I just thought, I found someone that understands. Yeah. Yeah, it was really exciting. Me too. Me too. Um, I remember being in Grobsner Hall and thinking about how community-based participatory research is taking this kind of dominant narrative of the university as a navel-gazing entity. Mm -hmm. And that narrative shapes relationships between campuses and community partners, oftentimes leads to town and gown divide, right? Narratives are consequential, mm -hmm. right? They, they shape, they orient, they make possible, they disrupt. Right. Thinking about how can we shift this and how do we do that together right, is a fundamental stepping back and thinking about what counts as expertise and what counts as knowledge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what was interesting at that time, I was not officially a part of the university. I was on a couple grant-funded projects that were finite. And I wasn't really established as a resident, and I certainly wasn't local. I lived here for a few years, but I didn't occupy a place in the community or the university. And I thought this is the perfect time to kind of take that play with it, and play in the space in between. And um, after those meetings, uh, I actually ended up working with several community members on a grant. And it was a, it was a very tough process in the sense that I had a lot to learn about my own assumptions and about what I thought was a great idea and you know what the textbooks say and then what real life and true wisdom says. Um, but I'm really grateful that everyone persisted with me because I have some very enduring collaborations and friendships that date back to that time, including this. Mm. I know. I um, consider you a gift to the universe <laughs> and certainly a, a gift um, to my family's life. We've journeyed together professionally. We've grown professionally, but also been by each other's sides in personal journeys, right? Moments of vulnerability, mm. moments of loss. And so now um, we get to take what are oftentimes conversations in hallways and elevators and invite other people into them and hopefully in ways that enlarge everybody's senses of what's possible mm -hmm. and in our finest moments, who we can be with one another and and to reflect on the worlds that we're creating together. Yeah, and what are the possibilities within your question, right, of, you know, not to deny the hardship, not to deny the trauma, not to deny the suffering. But I think we both believe fundamentally that it is possible to live and to live well and to live on your own terms within that. And that's the journey of a lifetime. And I think, I think that's where we kind of come together as a meeting of the minds and that's where we see story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
for listeners who haven't met you hmm. and aren't familiar with you, Joe, why storytelling for you? Tell us parts of your story. Invite us into what you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. Well, uh, storytelling has always been in my DNA. I come from a large, well, large extended Italian family. We would gather every Sunday for Sunday dinners, and they were raucous, and there were stories shared, and people laughing so hard they could barely breathe, and stories shared, reshared. We've heard them all a hundred times, and we'll want to still hear them a hundred times more. I grew up with stories. Um, family stories, and then literature. Um, my parents, and I am grateful for this in retrospect, didn't want us to play video games as kids. But there were books, and there were libraries, and I would get lost in books. And I grew up loving Shakespeare, um, Toni Morrison, um, Sophocles. Like, they were all my friends. So this is, these are places I escaped to. When I went to college, I was very clear that I wanted a major in English. I steeped myself in every kind of literature I could. I minored. I had, did a concentration, actually, in comparative mythologies and African-American literature. I didn't want to decide a field. I wanted it all. But when I graduated, I fell short of actually applying to grad school and committing myself to a career in, in English. I didn't know if I wanted to be a professor, if that would be like working at Barnes & Noble and, you know. <laughs> You know, would it kill the joy of seeing all these books around me and I'm at work. Um, so I took some time off and stumbled into social work, uh, working with people with um, definitely some uh, mental health challenges and differences and having a caseload of people who had very interesting stories, fascinating stories, but that were kind of told through the lens of their mental illness. And so it was a sort of a process of mystery decoding. And long story short, when I realized that psychology was not just a story, but a series of stories at an individual mm -hmm. level, mm -hmm. at a social level, stories of things that we can see happening in the world, and also stories of latent processes, and trying to discover, you know, how does this phenomenon work when we can't see any of it occurring? Well, that that was the missing piece. I think the the people and the, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. intersection of people and stories. Um, and so I went into uh, grad school for clinical psych in New York and then halfway through moved here, followed my wife uh, when she got a faculty job here at OU. Um, and the rest, I've been working at the med school ever since in different capacities and now I'm a assistant professor, associate professor in social medicine, where I'm very happy. I think this is the first time in right, nearly 15 years of our friendship that I knew you worked in social work. Mm. Like I, I knew about your experiences in psychotherapy, but I, I don't think I was aware of your entrance into that world through social work. Yeah, so I was a case manager. So I wasn't, I didn't have social work training. I was a, I was a case manager at a social services agency, and we were the legal guardians for people that the courts deemed mentally unable to manage their lives. Yeah. And so we would, we would go and manage their lives so that they could live in the community rather than be in institutions. Mm -hmm. And it was a wild ride. <laughs> I loved the glimpse I saw behind the scenes of social work. I absolutely loved it. 
Yeah, I remember a piece that you wrote in maybe 2011, mm-hmm. which we will make freely accessible for listeners of this show, where you kind of talked about some of those early experiences of yours. I went to college to be a social worker. So hmm. while stories were ever present in my family as I was coming of age, it was from a very different place. Oftentimes, the stories were silenced or dismissed, or there were buffers in my life that attempted to protect me from the harder edges of those stories. So like you, early on, entering into the story lives of others, like Nancy Drew books, (laughs) I would catch a thread and it would allow me to be transported into a world that was very different from the world I was living in. And it could open up a sense of aha or what if that maybe wasn't present there. My biological mom early in my life was in a really serious car accident due to substance abuse. There were years I didn't see her. She had to learn to walk and talk again. Even after she had gone through habilitation, she was never able to really maintain relationships or work jobs beyond the poverty level, right? So that was one aspect of my family life. Um, My biological dad and my stepmom came from what felt like at the time and, and still in retrospect feels like a very different world. Right, these distinct cultures. My dad and my stepmom had more intergenerational privilege and education and resources. And somehow I found myself in the middle of these two storied worlds. And now, in retrospect, feel like I benefited from both of them, but never really felt truly comfortable in either. And most often still find myself as a boundary spanner, right, in the spaces in between. Hmm. So I went to college to be a social worker because that's what I envisioned social workers to do, Hmm. right, was especially how do you amplify the voices and the needs of people on the margins, How do we foster more inclusive environments? How do we address some of the systemic forces at play? I quickly realized that was not a part of my gift skill set, but completed my degree in social research. That was my emphasis in sociology. I, I did my bachelor's thesis with a homeless shelter in Springfield, Missouri, and analyzed data that they had collected as part of their intake surveys for people who had come to seek shelter. And so this is this is self-report information. And at the time they were overwhelmed with information and and providing services. So to have somebody right come in and be able to to analyze that and provide a portrait of it, even if it was at a basic descriptive level of you have about 30% of your population who's dealing with substance abuse, self-reported. You have about 30% of your your population who's struggling with mental illness, and you have a significant group of people who are duly diagnosed. The value of that at the time 
was being able to put together grant proposals and argue for right an ecological perspective on how we address this a growing issue of people living in the streets without homes right that it's not just not having shelter that there are there are forces at, at play that you must address right mm. and i think at the time joe i graduated i probably patted myself on the back felt like i had done a good thing for the organization um i know that they used the that analysis to to get resources but it wasn't until later in life when i was in my phd program and delving deeply into narrative as a way of knowing that i started to really think about what are the stories of social problems that we tell with the data that we collect like the data that i collected right i was able to tell a story of homelessness but it was one that focused primarily on individual factors and forces that that story was a partial one didn't make it problematic per se but was very limited mm-hmm. because it didn't include a lack of low income housing or processes of deinstitutionalization and i think it was like those moments in retrospect where i started to see my perspective on how can we help foster well-being for ourselves create space for the well-being of others that the stories in our surround are profound in in the way that that happens so many commonalities i think in our yeah. in our kind of graduate training too and beyond but what's interesting about the example you gave at the shelter was that you were able to kind of use data to give voice and to articulate the story of something similar to sort of what you were experiencing as a kid only wasn't spoken about. Yeah. The thing that was surrounding you and not there that you escaped into books to see that there were other possibilities. There was that part of storytelling that once you see something, something meaningful, something Mm -hmm. important, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can't unsee it and you also can't stop telling it. Mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when when I did my postdoc here, it was very different from the clinical training I had in New York. So in New York, I was trained in a mostly psychodynamic um, clinical program as a generalist. But psychodynamic is sort of in the tradition of Freud, but m- this was a much more contemporary <laughs> version of that. Um, when I came here, I worked in the residency clinic working with some of the poorest of the poor in our counties, people who may or may not even have enough gas to get to an appointment, mm-hmm. let alone get regular care, people who've had historic mistrust of the medical profession and with good reason. Um, once you start to see people and what their lives are like and how they make meaning and how they actually forge something out of what on the surface looks like so little, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. you need those stories. You need to make sure that someone knows those stories. Those stories are important. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. I think that um, it took me longer in life to own the experiences that I had as valuable. I remember 
at being in high school and and helping my mom and my grandma go through the grocery store, but then leaving before they checked out because of the internalized shame of food stamps and knowing that the kid that sat next to me in, in history was going to be the person checking them out. So I remember fleeing from that, but now can talk about that and own, right, this level of scrappiness and um, resilience that comes from the knowledge that was cultivated in that trailer court. And too often, I think, and not at the risk of romanticizing poverty, because mm-hmm. I would never want a, a child to go hungry, to to um, feel like they they were walking through the world without the shelter they needed, even if that was a coat and, and gloves. But at the same time, we underestimate people's capacity to thrive. It's okay if a mom pulls out a drawer of a dresser and puts in towel and lays a baby there, right? That baby can thrive just like they're in a $3,000 crib from Pottery Barn. And we underestimate that. It it's again, goes back to how do we think about creating space for people to name their own worlds and to really honor and acknowledge expertise in the manifold forms that it comes. Yeah. And ingenuity and resourcefulness when you lack resources. Yeah. We tend to see the lack. We tend to look at life sort of with a lens of things that are missing. Yeah. Instead yeah, yeah, of looking at the possibility and what people are creating yeah. out of that. Yeah. One of the the organizations that we will feature on season three, and a, a person that we both know, Haile Voss, mm. who is the director of the Sugarbush Foundation, she's going to be talking about kind of the work of their organization in trying to help campus and community partners come together from an asset-based perspective. Many of the projects that they provide financial support for are projects like in Appalachia, right? Uh, when you look at the dominant narrative, it might be a narrative of depletion, right? And there are communities in in our region where there is a history of extraction, right? From the coal mm-hmm. mining industries, for example. How can we pause and think about that history and think about things that remain like acid mine drainage that works to oftentimes kill any uh, habitat right in our streams how can we foster partnerships that think about a how to clean that up but is it possible to to precipitate or cull out that iron ore from the waterway, and can we use that iron ore, something that's considered toxic? Can we flip the script and think about that as an asset? And so they're they're working with people who are doing just that, who are taking that and turning it into pigment that can be used for paint, right? So something that um, has been a part of a legacy Right, that has lived with families across generations, oftentimes associated with devastating consequences for families, 
we're now at a place where we're able to kind of reclaim that and rethink about that and flip it, right, into something that is more progressive. I love the work that Sugarbush does because it's so inspiring. And it's really, I see it as a very storied, narrative-based work because what they essentially are saying is the human tendency is to see, define the story as the waste. And then the resolution to that story would be get rid of the waste. What they're saying is the waste is the beginning of the story. Yeah. And that that waste contains multiple possibilities for something else Mm -hmm. and something brighter and something more beautiful. And that to me is really harnessing the power of narrative. Absolutely. And they're doing it in ways that bring together John Sabra from the College of Fine Arts. Guy Reifler from College of Engineering, Mm. and campus community partners like Rural Action. Our students are involved in this pollution to pigment, right? Um, Re-narrating what is possible. And and it's setting a stage for our future generations to think about a circular economy and not you can use a product – it has consequences and then it's done. It ends up in a landfill, right? Right. And then you could teach about that. You could teach your model of how you look at it. You could teach what's done with it. You yeah. can, yeah, it's a story that can be told to multiple audiences. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, and it's, we're back to CBPR, right? Working with the community. I, I vividly remember Hailey coming to a research methods class I was teaching this past fall And she told this story then. She tells it in the podcast about um, universities and communities. And the university is like this elephant on um, a teeter-totter. And the community is like a rabbit. And too often what happens is that a university partner will come in maybe for a semester, maybe for a year. And they'll try to be working on this partnership But all of a sudden, right, their timeline is done. They get up. What happens when that elephant gets off of the teeter-totter? And you have this rabbit who has come to depend on that entity rather than co-creating a sustainable model that is community-based where they're driving the questions, they're driving, right, um, the, the process but both are leveraging their expertise and their resources. And and it th- that imagery stays with me because it's powerful. And it evokes for the community a history of the same story over and over again. When funding dries up, so does interest and involvement, you know. And yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very powerful image. So let's talk about what stories do. Because we've hinted at it, right? Stories provide identity, right? Stories sometimes compete and collide. But how can we think about stories as essential to kind of the driving question of our podcast? How can we live well in the midst of inescapable illness, trauma, hardship? Well, I think at an individual level, even a social level, we can use the framework of stories to ask ourselves some really important questions. What kind of character are we in our own tale? Mm, mm. Right? Are we, 
are we a, a minor character? Are we a protagonist who's also our own antagonist? Um, are we living someone else's story mm. and we don't mm. realize it? We, you see that a lot in therapy. You see someone trying to come to terms with their unhappiness in life only to realize that they're actually living someone else's version mm -hmm. of who mm -hmm. they should be, but maybe didn't realize that because it's so embedded. I think stories allow us two things. They allow us, well, more than two things, but in this context, they allow us to kind of ask ourselves, you know, who are we, where are we going? And then they also let us kind of imagine what's the next chapter going to be? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. kind of role do we want to play in our own life? What roles have we played and have those roles worked? Mm -hmm. um, so I think we're constantly kind of uh, revising our narrative identity mm -hmm. in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, creating an identity, recognizing an identity that we've embodied and don't realize it, um, and then trying again for a new identity in a different stage of life. Hi, folks. Lynn breaking in for just a second. I've been talking to Dr. Joe Bianco, associate professor in the Department of Social Medicine at the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Joe is also associate director of the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. We've been talking about our shared curiosities about storytelling and well-being. Storytelling is a primary resource in helping us make sense of life disruptions and reimagining future possibilities. It also has a capacity to disrupt. On our Facebook page, we've provided links to the article in Health Communication that launched the Defining Moments feature, along with one of Joe's articles in that series. Okay, back to the conversation. So in listening to you, temporality or time seems key to how stories function for us, right? Because they, they're connecting past with our present moment, mm -hmm. but in hopes of envisioning a possible future, right? Maybe revisioning a future that you once had um, imagined that's no longer possible because of life circumstances, but it's the capacity to make sense of events and relationships among characters across time and in particular settings. That's really where the rhetorical power of storytelling rests. And I think you're you're absolutely right in pointing out events, right? Because we can't we can't choose a lot of what happens to us. A lot of what happens to us is not our fault. The world acts on us. I, I study trauma, and by definition, it's one of the few psychological conditions where we don't really specify, we, well, we don't actually leave ambiguous the etiology. We don't say, well, we don't know what causes trauma. We sure do. It's something in the outside world that acts upon the individual. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we know the etiology of trauma, and we can't use any sort of amount of creative writing to undo the things that have happened to us. And yet there's still choice within that. And it's not an easy path, but the choice is really reaching that point where you decide what this means for you, what role this will have, and how you will bring and bear these events as you move forward. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. You know, we we can't always choose what happens. We can choose what it means. And that meaning can change over time. Yeah. A narrative framework really lets us do that. It lets us do that at an individual level, but it also lets us do that with societal problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Social concerns. Yeah. One thing I've learned from you over the years and from other writers and practicing clinicians like Dr. Bruce Perry is really the value of of shifting the question from why are you doing that to what forces have led you to this place. And I found that to that shift to be so freeing both for myself in self-forgiveness, but also in how I relate to others, especially others who are radically different than I am. Yeah. Yeah, it's a difference between what's wrong with you or what happened to you to, you know, what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Like, yeah. Right? It's like, how is the outside world shaped who you are today as opposed to, you know, there's something wrong with you as a person. Yeah. And I think that that's such a powerful shift. And especially for psychologists, I think, who tend to sometimes think at such an internal level. Um, but the world is, and the setting is part of our story, and it shapes us in ways mm-hmm. that we realize and don't realize sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we internalize stories. Mm-hmm. And those stories that we tell about ourselves aren't necessarily empowering ones, right? I think back to how too often I've positioned myself in a victim role. And I think that narrative sensibilities offer us space to, to own that and, and then to know that no story is ever final. We all have capacity to shift. Um, and even those broader stories of a society that can feel like they hem us in, right? You and I are now in our fifth decade of living. <laughs> and I think about that dominant meta narrative of aging as decline. And it's really hard to step outside that and, and think about the wisdom right, that comes from having lived mm-hmm. your life, right? Um, so those two have fissures that can be cracked open and um, disrupted. I'm, I'm incredibly drawn to the disruptive potential of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Storytelling can really upset the apple cart. It could change what we think of as a positive, negative, who the hero is, who the, yeah. Yeah. Who the antagonists are. Um, yeah. You know? I, I, I think storytelling is, is sort of a social revolution or can be. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about some of the guests who are going to join us on season three and the defining moments of their lives that they share with us really have a lot to teach us about how stories can expose nuance how stories can disrupt silence, how stories can enlarge possibilities, advocate, transcend a a binary of either or, right? 
to a position of and, and. Our guests in our conversations, drawing on their life experiences, are, are really going to teach us something about how stories work to personalize otherwise distant um, tragedies. We'll have a couple really compelling examples of reinvention of life hurling something at you um, and forcing you to kind of renegotiate your identity, your view of the world. Um, we'll have Spencer Smith, yeah. who was um, a student, my first student that I ever uh, advised a thesis for. So he always goes down in my history as uh, occupying that special role. And um, as we'll learn in his podcast, his story was one of just promise after he graduated. He was working for Teach uh, for America and he was going to change the world, but was in a horrific car accident that um, he was told the damage of which would leave him in a nursing home for mm. the rest of his life. And his story is so much about that process toward reinvention and resuming some semblance of who he was under a under a set of very new and different circumstances and how much he relied on his family um, in his healing process to help his doctors understand what his baseline was. Mm. You know, brain damage, you, it's hard to measure someone's baseline without knowing them, right? And so we're gonna hear that story of not only Spencer and how he largely overcame the immediate injuries and has been living very successfully, but also um, differently with the consequences of that and his family's role and how they've created Smith Brain Connections as uh, an organization that advocates for teaching of traumatic brain injury in medical settings and healthcare settings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What I loved about Spencer's article, which our readers will have access to, given our partnership with Taylor and Francis, a group of Rutledge, they're going to hear Spencer and his family and care providers. They're going to read Spencer's account and, and enter into this foundation that was created where the origin narrative came from, right, this moment of disruption in a person's life. And in that way, I mean, to play with it, if at the heart of storytelling is expectations gone awry, hmm. right? Trouble with a capital T, as, as Kenneth Burke would say, continuity and disruption is a problematic of storytelling. Just as stories allow people to wrestle with those life disruptions, they function, right, disruptively. And that's hmm. what Spencer's foundation, the family foundation is doing. Absolutely. And we all knew that Spencer was back during his recovery, that some part of him had returned when he started acting a little defiant in the <laughs> hospital. And we all kind of breathed a sigh of relief, right? Um, and his story is very much one that's a counter narrative of limitations of uh, of a scripted medical model um, until he found a fantastic physician who saw in him possibility rather than disability. Yeah, yeah. I, f I feel like I'm able to, to get up generally 
<laughs> with joy because I glimpse on a regular basis people who are countering convention. Right? And oftentimes those crusts of convention can feel fossilized. But that biomedical model of disability, right, that you reference, that undergirded the organizing of life resources for many of our friends at Passionworks Studio for the early parts of their life until you have a, a founder who comes along and says, we don't have to live from a deficit-based perspective. We can approach people who move through the world differently, that look differently, right? who move their arms differently, who, who speak differently. We can create an environment in which they can thrive, right? and we can shift that environment to allow them to, through art first, be connected, find purpose, and belong. Right? When they've had a lifetime of oftentimes being pathologized, right? a system that's tried to fix them, that's tried to normalize them, rather than embracing them for their ability first, yeah. right? despite well-intended efforts. Um, so that, too, is how do we offer a counter-narrative of disability as difference, as meaningful difference, as embodied difference? And really, when you think of all of the art murals that are popping up throughout Athens and the signature passion flower that brings a lot of joy to so many of us, you really have to ask the question, uh, you know, who's rehabilitating whom, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I think these artists are rehabilitating the sides of our society that show that there are limitations and they're rehabilitating us in the best possible way. Yeah, yeah. Again, it flips this binary of who is the healer and who is the patient, <laughs> right? Right. We all walk through the world with wounds. Some of them are, are visible, some of them aren't. None of us leave the world alive. Right? And they offer us a vision of, I think, how to be more fully present in the moment. Absolutely well said. Mm -hmm. But that's not um, without danger. So mm -hmm. I... And I think in health communication scholarship, there is a therapeutic bias when it comes to storytelling. And what I mean by that is oftentimes scholarships assume that storytelling is inherently good. But the reason why counter narratives are so important is because some stories are so dangerous. Right? They're risky business. Mm -hmm. And so while, while storytelling can empower, it can also silence. It can dismiss. And I want to I, I continue to figure out how do we cultivate conditions in which we can learn from those stories, right? We can minimize the danger mm -hmm. right? and the destruction that comes from stories that are distorted, that are univocal, Right? I think it was Derrida who talked about impoverishment by univocality, hmm. right? When, when the story is so insular, right? 
and it's such an echo chamber that you're really impoverished by that. That you don't realize that there's a whole other story that's being silenced by that echo chamber and yeah. a story that only you, only the storytellers can tell yeah. if given a platform. Yeah. A lot yeah. Of, I think, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I think what the very things that make storytelling so powerful also make it dangerous when used for the wrong mm -hmm. means, when they're used to stereotype, when they're used to um, assure ourselves of things. Or mm -hmm. I think what, I, what I've seen in psychology myself, um, there are stories I've accepted without questioning until later learning that they were wrong. You know, mm -hmm. um, there are lots of enduring stories in medicine about the strength of black women. And while that may sound noble, that story also means compromised care, fewer, uh, um, fewer therapeutic uh, options offered. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's a story that might make physicians feel better about themselves. Um, but mm -hmm. it's a story, I think, in many ways that all of us kind of contribute to holding and perpetuating sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. There are lots of stories like that that I think are, are very dangerous in what they evoke. Mm -hmm. We've talked about, um, you know, assuming that the art done by people with developmental differences must be the product of art therapy as opposed to being actual beautiful, vibrant expressions of the self, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There doesn't have to be therapeutic intent for there to be therapeutic outcomes for all involved, right? Where all of us are elevated, right? All of us have a fuller sense of connection. Right. They're not making art because it's part of their treatment. They're making art to cure us, mm -hmm. to cure society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's, it's a shift from what Sean McNiff would call art in medicine to art as medicine, mm. right? Um, although I'm not even sure we need that medicinal language and metaphor, but it truly, once you've witnessed and experienced that, it, it, it's hard to, to walk away. Yeah. It's hard to forget it. One of the things that I, that I think is really important for us to acknowledge and, and for our listeners to understand is that Storytelling is vulnerable. It's vulnerable because we don't own stories. We might share a story in, in Studio B, a wing of WOUB Public Media Center, with a particular intent in that moment. And it's heard and interpreted by someone who's living in a very different context. And that story lives and breathes. It circulates. And for me, I don't want to live in a world where we control how those stories are interpreted. But, but what that means for me is that we need to be crafting brave spaces. Not necessarily safe spaces because I'm not sure some spaces have ever been safe for individuals, especially those marked as, as radically different from the norm. But it, it means cultivating bravery and a readiness to know that you're sharing something, right, that's going to live and, and grow in ways that you might not intend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everyone's going to understand the stories you put out there in the context of their own stories, yeah. right? Yeah. How they 
how compatible are they? How do they reflect similar values or not? Mm -hmm. yeah. It really illustrates how storytelling is relational. Mm -hmm. We think about a narrator, but meaning is made between people, in the space between. Exactly, and that space between that's not easily defined. And I think some of the bravest stories are the ones that people put out there that don't have an easy solution, that defy mm. an ending, mm -hmm. that makes the listener feel better. Um, these are stories that invite us to sit with discomfort mm -hmm. and not fix it. Mm -hmm. Stories of loss, right? Stories of oppression, stories of um, you know, structural racism, things that things that you can't tie up in a neat little bow, stories that force you to kind of sit with, grapple with, and immerse yourself in the discomfort of. Mm -hmm. I think those are some of the most important stories too, mm -hmm. also the hardest. Reminds me of a chapter that you are the lead author on where you talk about COVID-19 as really plunging all of us into this chaos narrative where it's hard to operate from a quest-based perspective right? and, and to see easy restitution solutions. Right. COVID has an agenda of its own, and we would imagine that of a virus, right? A novel virus. But what it exposed were, I think the pandemic exposed epidemics that were really long-seated and the chaos of those two colliding. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you, you know, I had this very naive idea at the beginning of the uh, pandemic that very few times in history could you say that every person in the world has something in common. Even just the word COVID. We may all navigate the experience of COVID very differently. Mm -hmm. But the whole world is united. No one doesn't know what COVID is. And yet that unifying point didn't seem to translate to other forms of unity. Instead, it kind of in the U.S. especially, I think, has exposed deep-seated divides. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Hence mm -hmm. the chaos narrative. Yeah. We're exposed to this virus, but we're moving through it differentially, right? With differential access to resources, in a healthcare system where its fault lines have been exposed, in a hyper-partisan and politicized moment. Public health efforts have always been political. They're never not political, mm -hmm. right? There are, there are value choices involved where you are trying to balance unfettered pursuit of liberty with a collective good and, and compromises are made, right? That That's political, but it's more partisan than I think in my lifetime I've ever yeah. experienced. And trying to, to walk through that while um, you see your parents die or your children die or mental health issues arise on college campuses in exponential numbers. It's really been... It's been a struggle. I move between like a post-it on my desk that says, what a time to be alive, <laughs> and another one that says, WTAF. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. can we just still be standing? Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's hard. 
It's hard to navigate. There's no narrative templates that easily provide equipment for living for us. No, not at all. And and in season three, we'll talk to Gillian Ice, who's um, living out exactly what you said, trying to manage the preventive aspect of public health as um, OU's special um, advisor to public health at, um, and the COVID management plan. You know, she she'll talk to that, what that's like navigating that uncertainty. Yeah. In a in a world that's constantly changing. Yeah. Yeah. We're also going to hear from Tiandra Finch. Um, and we're going to hear from Dr. Shelley Rollins, both of who are very honest in talking about vicarious trauma and burnout and what it's like to be on the front lines of care, on the front lines of activism where you're trying to raise awareness about systemic disadvantage and privilege but that doesn't come without a cost, right? For those who are willing to put themselves in, in a position of allyship or as a self-advocate, um, there are real embodied traumas that come with that. Mm -hmm. Was it also risky, yeah. right? Um, it's another risky element of of being the narrator, the brave narrator. No one can maintain an identity of pure empathy and pure investment without it eroding under these sort of stressful yeah. times. Yeah, there's a very real phenomenon called compassion fatigue that yeah. you're describing. Yeah, yeah. So wrapping up, Joe, I, I am so stoked um, to, to be on this journey with you, to invite other people in and, and mostly to also have our listeners join those conversations. What are, we, what, are we, what are we hoping to do? What do we want to do? What's most important to you? I want to inspire. I, I hear these stories of Spencer, of um, other Tiandra. I hear these stories, and I want someone to stop and just enjoy the privilege of entering someone else's world fully, immersing yourself, dive head first, and then bring something back with them. You know, bring a little bit back that you can take with you. Um, I think it's just such an honor and a privilege to, to be faced with these stories that have a lot to teach us about how we can handle hardship and how we can handle our own traumas and difficulties and still thrive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Me too. I think that it is an ultimate gift that we get to create and hold space for other people to name their worlds in sometimes in an effort to change them. Right? And I love Dr. Rita Sharon's notion of the imagination as a muscle. Mm -hmm. And storytelling requires all of us to exercise that muscle to imagine the life world of another person, right? to imagine the events, the, the setting, um, but to do that empathically and to do that critically, right? And to think about what questions does this conversation, does this story demand that I ask in the context of my own life? Right? What does it demand that I face? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
perhaps about my own trained incapacities, yeah. right? Um, yeah, our self-limiting scripts that we we all have, right? Yeah. These yeah. are examples of people that have pushed through that, not easily, but pushed through that. And there's a lot I think we can learn from that. Yeah. Me too. And with the knowledge that stories are always partial and they are indeterminate. And what I mean by that is that they don't stand still. Anna Gret is is not going to be the same person in a year that she is when her conversation with you takes place and is released. It's a moment in time. And how do we create space for people to be honest, acknowledge and share their own truths, knowing right, that we're going to experience bits and pieces of that and that that partiality is always going to shift, right? And people are always going to continue to grow just as we are, right? We might listen to an episode at one point in time and three months later go back to it and we're in a different place and we're hearing something different. And that's the co-created, relational, beautiful, messy, complex nature of how we make meaning. But it's at the heart of how we live well and how we try to live well. And I think what's so great about the Defining Moments podcast is that if we think about storytelling as a continuum of um, sort of aspirational and uh, positive ends, like what we can do with storytelling, there's our own stories in telling it, but there's the aspect of listening to it, Mm -hmm. doing something with it, and then creating a third story. That story that's the combination of yours, theirs, and what you which you have co-created and brought forward. It's through that kind of sort of formal or completely informal co-authorship mm-hmm. with people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that we actually can build empathy and start to see social change. And I think it all starts, though, by selecting peoples whose stories should be told, need to be told, mm-hmm. and giving them that platform, mm-hmm. which I think the Defining Moments podcast has done beautifully. Yeah. Um, For listeners, I hope that the stories that are shared, I hope they challenge you, I hope they move you, and perhaps even inspire you to share a story of your own. That would be great. Thanks, everyone, for joining Dr. Joe Bianco and I for this episode of Defining Moments podcast. We're excited to co-host season three. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our brilliant sound engineer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR podcast directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. Remember, on our Facebook page, we provide links to articles, one that launched the Defining Moments feature in health communication, along with one of Joe's essays published in that forum. We hope you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Go in peace. Peace.